All right, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to jump right into the text right off the bat here, jumping straight off the diving board into the deep end. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, let's read it together. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriages and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're, we're working our way through this text, and I wanted to start out reading that paragraph because honestly, I think that paragraph sets the stage for the rest of our morning and kind of illustrates why this book that we're studying is so Important. It shows us what's at stake whenever we study Scripture together, whenever we gather together here on Sunday mornings. It shows us what is at stake. Nothing less than our faithfulness, our lives, and ultimately our eternity. As we sit here this morning, that's what's at stake. I wonder if you think about that whenever you, you drive to church on Sunday mornings, as you prepare, as you get dressed, as you... As you, as you jump on your kids because they're not getting dressed fast enough, as you work through all the things that are a Sunday morning, as you walk into this place, as you greet friends when you walk through the door, uh, as you check your kids in for prob kids, as you come in here and sit down and you sing these songs, I wonder if that is on your mind. I'm going to guess probably not. Probably it's just what we do, Right? We just show up at church on Sunday because this is the thing that we do. Now, maybe some of you here are, uh, are guests with us this morning, and this is a new thing, so maybe you've put, you've put more thought into it than, uh, than, than, than others that are in here who it's kind of a routine and you kind of do it without even thinking about it. But, but for, for most of us, when you walk in here, you, you, you're not thinking eternity is at stake when you walked through those doors this morning. When you woke up this morning, you weren't, you weren't thinking, I need to go to church because eternity is at stake whenever we start talking about what is happening at church. Now, I want to be clear here. Whenever I say that it's at stake, I don't mean I need to go to church or my life is over and I've rejected my faith. That's not what I'm saying. It's not as though showing up here this morning has, has made you a Christian, has made you faithful, or has made you... Uh, made you ready for eternity. Showing up here does not do that. But it, it, we should not minimize what is happening here this morning simply because the, the direct implications aren't quite as clear. As we go through this text this morning, I think what we're going to see that, that Paul is saying is, is that in a very real sense, what we do here every Sunday, week in and week out, isn't just us getting together to hang out and do the church thing. In a very real sense, eternity is in the balance. And I hope that's enough this morning for, for you to kind of sit back and say, all right, I need to know what we're, what we're talking about here. If, if my life, my faithfulness, and eternity hangs in the balance based off of what happens when we come through these doors, hopefully that's enough to make you kind of sit up and say, okay, well then I need to know what it is that we're doing when we come through these doors. 
I need to know what it is that makes it so important. And as Paul opens chapter 4, he says that the Spirit expressly says, and people have, have, have tried to read into that all kinds of ways, the reality is we don't know how the Holy Spirit has made this clear to Paul. We don't know if it's a, a word that he's received, if it's a prophecy that someone has given. We don't know if, it, if it's just an impression that he's got. We don't know what it is. But, but, but Paul very clearly believes and, and, and has heard from the Holy Spirit that some will depart the faith. Now, Paul isn't saying here that some will lose their salvation. I don't think that's the picture that we have here. And you'll see as we go through this why. I think the picture here is that the, the, the same as 1 John. They'll leave us because they were never really of us. They never really were a part of us. They'll chase after the influence of all other kinds of teaching. They haven't devoted themselves, as it says in Acts chapter 2, to the apostles' teaching. Instead, they're chasing after all these other different things, all these other uh, lies. They'll chase after this, this, this influence and these other things that Paul talks about, all these different varieties of false teachers. Paul calls them demons, liars, and those with seared consciences. He, he, the, the, the ways that he puts out there and, and, and that he says is that these guys are guys that they'll follow, but these guys are not people you should be listening to. The, the picture here is not people that are hardcore committed Christians going to church, but these are people that are listening to all these other different influences in their lives and they're following after all of them. And he says that, that these people have different things. He says that they'll uh, they'll, they'll follow those who forbid marriage and who keep you from eating certain foods. And we talked about early in this book how some people think that First Timothy is written to a context where uh, some, some, some Jewish teaching had kind of taken root and how there is like a, a legalism that is, that is showing up here, similar to what is in the book of Galatians. And this is the text that they use. And they assume that the not eating food and that the the forbidding marriage is, is a, a uh, kind of a holdover from Jewish teaching that teaches this kind of asceticism. Like you're not supposed to do these things because it makes you more holy. And that's possible. That may be what is going on here. Nowhere else in the text does it actually say that that's the case. Uh, they, they draw it strictly from this text, and, but that, that may be the case. But equally as possible is that this is, again, referring to the cult of Artemis. These things, forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain types of food and not being able to participate in these, these specific things would have been hallmarks of the cult of Artemis. And so I think this is another reference to what is going on. Both of those things would have been possible or would have been a part of that cult. And I think what Paul is saying is that this kind of teaching is what's all around the outside of your church, Timothy. And people are buying it wholesale. They're buying into all of it. They hear all of it. It's all in their ears. And you have got to be ready for the fact that some people are going to hear that and they are going to follow that. Paul wants Timothy to know that these false teachers really have no argument whenever they, they present these things. These are simply man-made rules and man-made devices that they use to enslave people. They have no bearing in the gospel. They have no bearing in scripture. They have no bearing in the truth. And, and, and Timothy needs to realize that these people are chasing after lies. The truth is that God is so sovereign over all of it. And they can have the freedom to eat what they would like. They, they, they can have the freedom to marry if they want. They have the freedom to pursue what they desire so long as they do so and they honor God in what it is that they do. 
So long as they, they test that against Scripture, they hold it against the Word of God, and they thank, and they, they thank God for it. So that's not just a, you know, God, thank you for this, this thing that you've given to me, and then that gives you license to do whatever you want. This is not what Paul is trying to get at here. The point that he's trying to make is that if you receive it with thanksgiving, you test it against the Word, then, then what it is that's there, don't let somebody else come and say, well, that's no good, you can't do that. Don't let somebody else come and say, you're not supposed to do this thing. You're not supposed to get married whenever you can test that against the word of God and know that God absolutely is on board with marriage. And so, so, so Paul wants Timothy to know that, that God is the author of all these things. And God alone will determine what is good, right, and holy. Not man-made rules rooted in the worship of a false god. These teachers were primarily calling two things into question. The goodness of God and the holiness, the rightness of His teaching. God's Word. In distorting God's teaching, they were distorting the nature and the character of God. Now that should sound pretty familiar to you. That should sound like a story that you've heard before. It's exactly the tactics that Satan has used since the beginning. Did God really say... God's just holding out on you. God doesn't want the best for you. He's, he's holding back on you. And even if, he's, even if he's, he's not completely holding back, he didn't really mean that whenever he said that. Did God really say that? You deserve more. You deserve all of these things. Satan, for all of his cleverness, and he is certainly that, for all of his cleverness, he hasn't really changed his core message since the very beginning. It's the same today. He will do everything to convince you that God's way is one of three things. One, either, either one, God's rules aren't good for you. Two, that God himself is not good. Or three, that God doesn't want the best for you at all. And he will do all he can to convince you that God's word isn't good, God himself isn't good, and what God wants for you isn't good. He will constantly find every angle he can to, to convince you of those things. Some of you in here this morning are dealing with physical suffering. Others a failing marriage. Some of you singleness, infertility, financial problems, parenting problems a whole host of other things, and you are asking the question, and, and, and maybe that's what you walk in here this morning thinking, or maybe it's just this kind of like nagging question in the back of your head. Is God really good? If I'm going through this, does that mean that God isn't here with me? And if He is here with me and I'm still going through this, does that mean that God isn't good? Or does it mean that God is against me? Maybe God is good and, and, and He's just against me. Maybe the rules that He's created aren't really good for me. They're all about Him and they're not really in any way meant to bring me life and joy. Instead, they're meant to bring me down and tear me apart. Can I trust God? If I'm dealing with these things, if these things are what's in front of me from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to sleep, can I trust Him? Why should I follow a God that seems either distant and removed or vindictive and out to get me? These are all questions that, that, that we all ask at some point. 
As we go through life and we deal with suffering, these are all things that, that, that either creep into our head or, or are right in front of us at all times. And what Paul is trying to throw out here, what he's trying to say, these are the same questions that Adam and Eve were asking in the very beginning. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't follow that model. God is for you. You need not fear His rules. You need not add your own in order to to somehow fill in the gaps where God is missing things. And this is what was happening with these cults that were in there, or, or this false teaching, whatever it is. They were adding to the rules. They were adding to God's Word. And they were saying, here's all these other things you shouldn't do. I, maybe the Word of God doesn't say that, but we're going to add to it because you know we can, we can add a few rules just to make things a little bit better. And what Paul is trying to say is, Timothy, don't let that happen. Don't let these people buy into that false teaching. Yes, some will, but you don't do that. You don't buy into it, and you watch out for your congregation and for your people. Teach them not to buy into that. Bring your heart before Him in gratitude and thanksgiving and see what His calling is for you. God has given us so much to enjoy in life. And we spend so much time redefining all of it that we, we don't get to enjoy a lot of it. Let me, let me speak to a total subset of Christians that are out there. And I don't know how many we have in, in this room. I don't know if you are like this or not. Maybe you're like this deep down and you just don't show it. Or maybe you're just kind of out in the open with this. But part of what Paul is telling Christians here and Timothy in the church is lighten up just a little bit. Quit being so serious and restrictive. The nature of the Christian faith is not by nature one of restriction and rules. It's one of freedom and joy. Enjoy what God has given you. Of course God has rules for us. But honestly, most of them come down to how much we offer our hearts to Him. Not so much about what we, what we do in a very specific set of rules. Some Christians just need to chill out just a little bit. Now, maybe that's not you. And I want to be careful even saying that because there's also a spirit of of kind of licentiousness that's out there that basically says everything goes, anything goes. And that's not what Paul is trying to say here. But I certainly think that it, it merits speaking to some that just need to back off just a little bit, smile and enjoy what God has given them. Sorry, it's a bit of a soapbox, but we, we gotta, we, we've got to do better. We've got to do better when it comes to some of that stuff. Let's keep reading in our chapter and see what else Paul has for us. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, this is the saying about how everything is good and received with thanksgiving. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be good, a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, Again, I think this is referring to all the the nonsense with Artemis. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So Paul turns to Timothy and he begins to give kind of some personal instruction. 
Remember I told you that chapter 3 was kind of the hinge, and then when we get to chapter 4, what we're doing here in chapter 4 is we're addressing kind of internal problems that are going on in this church. And here in chapter 4, it's kind of a very specific instruction given to encourage Timothy. We'll see that in this paragraph and the next paragraph to come. He turns and he gives kind of personal instruction for how, how Timothy is to deal with these false teachers that are out there, the ones that are leaving the church on account of this teaching. How does he do that? He gives Timothy some advice and he tells, them, he tells him to train himself for godliness. To train himself for godliness. I want to show you a, a, just a, a couple of pictures this morning. I should put the, the first picture up here. All right, does anybody know where that is? Just like off the top of your head, anybody? New York, all right, so it's Central Park. This is a giant like reservoir that's in the, in the middle of Central Park. Uh, Emily and I had a chance to visit there a few, uh, a few years ago, and, and we loved it. And we had this, uh, this like Groupon or something. I don't, I don't really understand how, how we even got this thing that we had. But we had this Groupon that included a bike rental from a shop in New York City where we could rent a, a, a bike in Manhattan, uh, and then we could ride around Central Park for a few hours. That was the that was the goal. And so we thought, well, that sounds like it would be a good, fun thing. It was, you know, about 80, 85 degrees or so. It was warm, but it wasn't super hot. It was, it's about a six-mile ride around the loop in Central Park, which it's not nothing, but as far as bike rides go, that's a, that's a fairly doable thing. It's not terrible. And uh, so uh, you can see the next picture. We look so happy here, right? So a little selfie that we've got over here on this side. We're uh, there at that pond. It's good. That's us over here on the left. We're all ready to go for our bike ride. Everything is wonderful. We rent our bikes. We get them rented. But whenever we rent our bikes initially, so this is like when we at, we're actually in Central Park, but we go to rent our bikes. Well, what we find out is that the bike shop's like three blocks away from Central Park, which if you've not been to New York, that doesn't sound like a lot, but like New York blocks are big. It's a long ways away. And so we're trying to figure out, well, how do we get these bikes over to Central Park? Because I'll tell you this, I'm not going to ride my bike out here on like 11E. I'm certainly not going to do it in Manhattan because I will die. Uh, and so we're like, we're not going to do that. So we walk our, our bikes, these three blocks. It takes us about half an hour to get there. We walk them. We finally get to Central Park and uh, and we get going, and I hop on the bike, and immediately the chain slips. So if you've been on a bike, and like you know what I'm talking about, like, like the first pedal is just like, whoa, like I just like almost go down. I was like, well, that's not good, but maybe I just got to kind of get things going, right? So, so I get going a little bit. It takes like 15 minutes to go a quarter of a mile, because I cannot get my bike going at all. Um, and so I can't figure out what in the world is going. I'm, I'm a little annoyed, but you know, I hop off and I start fiddling with the chain. And I grew up on a bicycle. I was on a bicycle all the time. 18 speed in my neighborhood, in the, in the woods, in the backyard, in the, like, the neighborhood. I was on a bike all the time. So I'm, I'm fine, comfortable on a bike. It is not a problem for me at all. And so I think, all right, I can fix this. But, you know, immediately I've got grease all over my hands because I'm fiddling with the chain. And it's just like, ah, this is a little frustrating. This is not as, like romantic and I, I, ideally because I thought this was going to be. This is not, uh, this is not great. Um, but then my chain kind of clicks into place and I'm good for about a mile, right? So we start going and that's where we stop to get this first picture here where we're smiling uh, and happy and, uh, and, and all is well. Um, but then we start going and as soon as we start going immediately, chain starts slipping again. 
I'm like, come on. It takes me about 15 minutes. I kind of find a hill where I can get going downhill a little bit to kind of change my gears and get the chain. It, chain clicks into place again, and, and all is well. And we go for about another 15, 20 minutes. It's good. It's actually enjoyable. We're having fun. And then we stop. We take in a few more sights, and then we start going again. Again, chain starts slipping. And every time, it's like, it's not like, oh, man, this thing isn't going right. It's like I almost kill myself on the handlebars every time when we start going. It's very, very frustrating. But now we've made it to like the backside of Central Park. And the only way to get back to the, the bike shop is to just complete the loop at this point, right? We're, we're that far away. We've got to keep on going. We've got to complete the loop. And so I spend the next 15 to 20 minutes trying everything I can on this bike, I mean everything I can to try to fix this. I'm shifting gears. I'm, I'm going up. I'm going down. I'm trying every gear combination, every speed strategy I can think of. No luck. It's miserable. It is no fun at all. It is now not a, a nice balmy day. It's hot and I'm sweating and I'm miserable, which is when a, a, a roughly 60-year-old fit-ish woman bikes past me and sees me struggling with my bike and slipping and just awkwardly trying to ride this bike. And she kind of slows down and rides with me for about 100 yards along this. And, uh, and then she, she looks at me and my frustration and my sweat and my flailing. And then she, she decides she'll offer me some advice in about the most condescending way I, I can think of. And she says, you got to shift your gears, hun. And I'm just like, come on. Are you serious right now? Uh, and this little phrase, just so you know, over the last five or six years has become like the go-to catchphrase for my wife. Uh, as she has, she has, she, she heard this, she's, she's a little bit in front of me and she hears this lady give her condescending advice and, and Emily is just laughing. She's like, man, he's going to be mad. And, uh, and, and she, was, she was right. Uh, I immediately stopped. I'm like, you don't, you don't say, I need to shift my gears. I've been trying for an hour and a half. You shift the gears on this bike. Um, all the fun was gone. Every bit of enjoyment was gone. Uh, I hated everyone and everything at that moment. Uh, I immediately pulled off for a shady spot, uh, trying to let my anger subside. I was not happy. And I, that's... That's the picture, and I promise you, it does not, it does not capture the, the, the steam coming off my head at that moment. Uh, I took another picture. You compare these, the, the next picture. Go to the next picture. Compare these two pictures. Good bike, bad bike. That's basically what, what we have right there of those two things. It was, it was not fun at all. Uh, and so after about 15 minutes of me cooling down and saying, all right, I just got to get this thing back to this stupid bike shop and return it. Can we just go? So we headed out and we actually had a decent ride for the last couple of miles because most of it was downhill on this part that we were at. Um, but it was, I mean, I'm still frustrated. We get very near to the end and you have to stop to let bikers cross. They have like, like, like traffic signals, but for the bikes. And so you have to stop to let some bikes cross and it's pretty congested on this end of the park and uh and we start to pull out and I kindly let my wife who was to my side pull out in front of me to make sure she's got plenty of room and so she starts going and then I start to get going and then uh her weight kind of transfers to the right pedal and she veers in front of me and when she veers in front of me in that moment I have 
two options. Her back tire is right in front of me. And I've got two options. I can clip her back tire. She goes flying. I probably crash, but I can see it coming, so I can probably brace myself. Or I eat it. And I ate it. I squeezed that bike, that, that brake as hard as I could, and not being familiar with the bike, it was the front brakes, and over the handlebars I went, and uh, landed, landed on the handlebars, kind of went down in a heap, all tangled up in the bike, had all these like New York City people running over to help the stupid tourist that's laying on the ground, uh, and uh, and, and, and my wife, about 20, 30 yards in front of me, finally realizes what happens and is cackling hysterically, <laughs> thinking it's hilarious. She's saying no right now. She was laughing at me. She was absolutely laughing at me. Uh, I got, I've got like skinned up knees, busted up hands. I'm just like, all these people are coming to help me. I let somebody help me up. And I'm just like, no, no, nobody talk to me. I am going. We're out of here. I am I've never been as over something as I was that bike ride that day. It was not a good experience at all. It was, it was miserable. So why do I tell all of that long, dumb story? I, in part, because I've had that in my back pocket for like six years, and I needed to tell that story. But, but listen, I grew up on a bike, like I said. Being on a bike was no big deal to me. Knowing how to ride a bike, how to gear down, how to do all the things that you're supposed to do in order to correct these things. I knew how to fix the chain and all of those things. None of that was helpful for me that day. All my physical training, all of my, all of my, the, my, everything that should have made that day a great experience for me was not a great experience for me at all. And as I get older, listen, what I constantly realize is that time is 100% undefeated. In every person's life, there comes that place where you, you get to this point in life where you're no longer working out to look good or to get stronger. You're working out to avoid having to go to the doctor, right? You're, you're working out to get your cholesterol down. You're working out so you don't have a heart attack. You're not worried about fitting into a pair of jeans. You're worried about making it and, and just making it. Like that's all you're really worried about. And that's why you are, you're doing that. Physically speaking, we don't stand a chance against the brokenness of this world and what it heaps on us. Not one of us. Super encouraging thought this morning, right? But this is, this is the reality of a broken world. Physically, we don't stand a chance. And while God never promises us rescue from the spirit or from the, the physical brokenness of this world, He does offer us rescue from the spiritual brokenness of this world. And when it comes to the physical struggles, those two will be gone one day. But Paul wants us to see that the problems we have in this world are not solved by the solutions of this world. Physical, political, mental, spiritual, or anything else. The solutions for our pain and for our problems is, is, is first and foremost a spiritual solution. Godliness has value in all things. And I can promise you that bike ride tested my, uh, my level of godliness for sure. Uh, but, but godliness has value in all things. Take the... the and, and what Paul is saying is, is, Timothy, take the things that you have been taught. Take the things that, that you have been given and apply those things. Work out, sure, that's fine. Fasting, that's fine. Go for it. Do that. 
If you'll allow me to stretch the metaphor just a little bit, vote. Go and vote. Yes, sure, go and do that. But don't put your hope in any of those things because they will ultimately fail you. Physical training has some value. Dealing with the things of this world and a strategy to attack those things, they have some value for sure. But put your hope, put your attention, bet your life on godliness, for that has value in all things. For so many people, the simple, the simple advice of how to get through life is basically that woman's advice to me. You just got to shift your gears, hon. If you'll just shift your gears, then, then, then you'll be doing better. You got to come up with a better strategy. You got to come up with a better plan. You got to come up with a, with a different way of doing things. And if you can do that, then you'll be just fine. Paul's fine with that. Come up with a new strategy. That's great. But the best course of action and the only sustainable course of action is when we shift our focus, not just our strategy. Shift our focus from the temporary things of this world to the eternal things that truly matter. And this is what he says. It is to this end that we toil and strive because we have our hope in a living God. And finally, Paul, Paul closes with some direct instruction for Timothy and, and for Timothy's role in all of this. This is going to be uh, verse 11. He tells Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but, let the believers, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, so this is some clear encouragement to Timothy to press in and press on. To keep going, to press through all of this. Encouragement for Timothy is he has taken this new role as an elder and as a preacher in Ephesus. There's a lot here in this little paragraph that we could that we could take out, and a lot of it is instruction for a pastor, but I don't think it's a stretch though to think about how this applies more broadly. He encourages Timothy to not let the outside noise get to him and make him timid in his witness. For Timothy, this was likely his age and his inexperience. But I wonder what it is for you. What is that thing that kind of gives you a check whenever it comes time to, to, to talk about your faith, to talk about God? I wonder what it is that kind of makes you balk, that kind of makes you hesitate, kind of makes you pull back. I wonder what it is that makes you not seek out those opportunities with others. Perhaps you, like Timothy, are timid for some reason. Perhaps you, like Timothy, maybe, maybe it's because you too are young. Or maybe it's because you've got sin in your past that, that, that you, you haven't completely dealt with or you're afraid that others might know about. Or, or, or maybe it's all kinds of different things. The reality is Satan will throw all kinds of stuff at you to keep you quiet. He will use anything in his toolbox. Everything is on the table for him to use to make you timid about your faith and speaking about that faith. Maybe it's your qualifications. You don't feel like you're smart enough or well-versed enough in Scripture in order to have a conversation like that. My first thing I would say is, well, get well-versed. But even if you're not, even if you're not, 
That doesn't stop us from being able to talk about the good news that we know and that we have given our lives over to. Maybe it's your lack of eloquence. Maybe it's your own mess. Maybe it's just your busy schedule that you have created. What is it that causes you to hesitate and shrink back when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus? Whatever it is, Paul says, lay that excuse down. It doesn't hold. It doesn't hold because the good news is so much greater. Its goodness is so much greater than whatever it is that is driving your timidity. Don't let, don't let those things make you hesitate and draw back. The good news should overwhelm any of those reasons. He says, don't hesitate, but go and live the life that God calls you to. And then here in verse 13, it's kind of, uh, kind of interesting. He kind of goes through it pretty quick. But here in verse 13, we have what is probably the clearest verse in all of Scripture that informs what we do here on Sunday mornings. It kind of blows by it pretty quick, but it's probably the clearest verse. The Bible is shockingly quiet about, about the shape and the nature of what our gatherings should look like. But Paul tells Timothy what he needs to do. He tells Timothy, here's what it, would, here's what it, should, look, what it should look like. In the midst of an anti-Christian culture, in the midst of a culture that is worshiping all these other deities around you, here is exactly what Paul's advice is. Here's what you do, Timothy, when you're surrounded. Read the Bible. Teach the Bible. And encourage and exhort the people. That's it. That's all that he puts there. He then goes on to say that if Timothy does this, it will save himself and his hearers. This obviously doesn't mean that that Timothy will save them as though Timothy is the one doing the saving. But what Timothy does, the way he carries out his tasks, will have eternal implications. And so it is with us here on Sunday mornings. This moment on Sunday mornings when we gather, when we gather together in our front porch communities as a church, when your discipleship group gathers together, It can be easy to think of it as just another thing, maybe even just another church thing, but make no mistake about it. What we are doing here each Sunday and each time that any part of this body gathers together touches eternity. It has implications far beyond our day-to-day realities. And Paul says, how do we handle the weight of this moment that we have been given? How do we stand up under persecution and a culture surrounding us that at best wishes we were not here? What is our best strategy for withstanding the onslaught of enemies and and his accusations and arrows? And his answer is, go to church. Go to church. Not just any church but a church that loves Jesus and has sound doctrine and teaches that doctrine. That's it. We don't build a massive massive platform in order to gain influence. We don't compromise for a political party or candidate. We don't need so much of what today's American church is frankly built around. We don't need it. What do we need in order to endure and ultimately thrive as the people of God? 
We need each other. We need God's Word. We need Jesus. If you've got that, then you've got what you need in this world. It's a shockingly, almost disappointingly simple solution. We don't need all the other stuff. It's so easy to want to add to this formula. Going back to the beginning of this chapter and the way that the false teachers would add to this formula by by giving all these other rules to where we come today in our culture where we say, okay, that's great that you have this and that you have that, but but, but is 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 your band, like are they rocking? Is your church good? What, what kind of building is your church in? What kind, of, what kind of this do you have? What kind of that do you have? Do you have this program? Do you have that program? I need to be involved in this. I need this. I need you to do this. I need to go to this worship concert. I need to be able to do these things. Jesus needs to be able, you know, needs these things in order to influence the culture. And Timothy says, no, no, no. Here's what it looks like in order to stand up in the midst of a culture that you are surrounded by that does not love Jesus and very much wishes you weren't here, go to church. Go to church. Study the Word. Be moved by the Spirit. Love Jesus. So often we want to add to that formula, but every single time we do it, we just end up detracting from its power. So friends, if you want a good summary of what we're trying to do here at Providence... What we're going to talk about next week at 101, for those of you that are signed up for that. If you want to know what our vision is, this is a pretty good picture of it. We teach God's Word. We commit to one another. And we love Jesus. That's what our goal is here. And I think if we do that well, then, then, then when we show up here on Sunday mornings, we can say, yes, this moment, what we're doing right now, touches eternity. And it's exactly the way that God has called us to do it. Because it exalts Jesus. It exalts God's truth. And it draws us together in community. I think that's what we're called to do. Here in just a few minutes, we're gonna, the band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song here together. We're going we're gonna to join together in song. And then afterwards, we will take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is meant to be a moment in which we celebrate that very thing, that unity of the, 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 the Word of God, the people of God, and what Jesus has done for us on our behalf and how the Spirit draws all of that together in order to glorify Jesus and make us one. That's what we will do with the Lord's Supper. And all of it is because we want to point ourselves back to Jesus. We want to do exactly what it is that Paul calls us to do, where where we say it is to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. We do not have our hope on temporary fixes in this physical world. They will let us down. They will not sustain. But our hope is in the living God because that is for all eternity. And it's so much bigger than just a moment of gathering together. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we...
As we study your word, as we sing these songs, as we consider what it is that you have done on our behalf, that that you have sent your son, that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled, as we do all of that together, Father, I pray that you would would draw our focus not to the immediate, to the, the, the things that even are affecting us this morning, the things that we're feeling in our bodies, the things that we're feeling in our culture, the things that we're feeling here in these temporary kingdoms that will go away. But instead, you will draw our focus to, to, the, to your kingdom, the kingdom of God, and to your Son. And that you would make us exactly what it is that Timothy says, you would make us godly, for that has value in all things. But we cannot do that ourselves. We are fully dependent upon you to do that in our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.